Welcome back to your political playlist. I'm your host, Emily Tish Sussman. These past few weeks have been a heavy reminder that the fight against injustice and racism continue. The tragic shootings in Atlanta, where six Asian women were tragically killed, have shed light on the rise in the AAPI hate crimes across the country. I'm sitting down with Congresswoman Grace Meng from New York to talk about how policy and people can play an active role in stopping Asian hate. Welcome, Congresswoman. Thank you so much for joining us, Congresswoman Grace Meng of New York. It's really a pleasure to have you on, not just as a as a um, fellow lifelong New Yorker who found themselves as Washington, as also I did, uh, but also as an alum of Cardozo School of Law. Uh, well, thank you so much. It's so it's so incredibly important and timely to have you on um, as we're seeing increased violence against Asian Americans in the last couple of months, weeks, um, you know, first a hit to businesses and then actual violence towards Asian Americans and the Stop Asian Hate campaign. On this podcast in particular, we try to talk about how there are policy solutions to problems that we have. That's really the angle that we like to take. And I was so interested to have you on um, because as a member of Congress, you're actually looking for policy solutions and have introduced the COVID-19 anti-hate crimes bill. So I'd love if you could give us some context and tell us what it does. Sure. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, I appreciate uh, the attention to this issue. It's an issue, as you appropriately reminded us, that has hit us for many months, uh, over a year at this time, um, first with the businesses, small businesses in our communities here in New York and across the country where there were sort of subtle and sometimes not so subtle references to Asian Americans and their relation to the coronavirus. (laughs) Um, And as time progressed through the months, we just saw and heard about more and more incidents and unfortunately more incidents that included violent attacks as well. Um, It's really taken uh, a a lot of people um, paying attention to this issue in recent weeks because I think largely of more attacks on the elderly and then of course the attacks and the tragedies that happen in Atlanta. So this is a complicated problem. You know, I'm not going to pretend that bigotry towards Asians didn't exist before the former president, um, but they did skyrocket in the last year. And so for a complicated problem, it requires a solution that won't be so straightforward. Uh, solutions that require working with everyday community leaders to legislative and policy solutions. I had proposed legislation actually last year um, in 2020 that would basically streamline some of these resources and personnel at the Department of Justice. There's no real unified or national way of collecting data, helping give guidance to local entities, uh, making it easier for people to report these incidents, crimes or not. And so we just thought it would be really helpful to have in a centralized location um, the data where the problems are, and that will help us to detect solutions more easily. We've 
really dependent on this narrative um, of uh, a local organization called Stop AAPI Hate, who's been collecting all these incidents. And that's how we got the 3,800 number from. But as great as they are, we shouldn't be relying on one uh, advocacy group to do all this work. And does that kind of data collection exist for other communities within the Department of Justice, what you're proposing? Or are you proposing uh, a new model? Yeah, it does not exist. Um, There's no streamlined and dedicated personnel and, you know, interagency type task force to do this. And you're right, this bill doesn't necessarily just address the problem of hate incidents towards Asians, but to any and all communities. Um, and so we, we do think that the, the legislation and the solutions are long overdue. Um, and because of these rising incidents across the country towards Asian Americans, we felt like it was a great time to reintroduce it. And we're actually really happy that President Biden has voiced support for this bill. Yeah, can you give us a little insight into the logistics there? President Biden did say that he had support for your bill, which is great. And creating a department within the administration sounds like something the administration could do on their own. Could they create a department on their own? Could he just say, you know, can you say thank you so much for your support, but let's see it? Yeah, we won't take it any which way we can get help from. It doesn't have to be a Grace Meng bill. Um, But, you know, he has taken uh, concrete initial steps from day one of his administration. I mean, at the very least, condemning the sort of uh, hatred and attacks is so meaningful towards the community who really felt like we've been screaming into a black hole for over a year with no one listening. So for President Biden to take that initial step with the executive memorandum, and then later on announcing support for my bill, and also taking initial steps that the Department of Justice and various uh, federal agencies could do to start addressing this problem. But we also want to make sure that this is a solution that goes beyond a Biden administration. Um, We don't want a potential future president to uh, go a different way and not prioritize this sort of uh, collaboration. And on the cultural side, this sort of spans from from policy to culture, but your colleague in the Senate, Senator Tammy Duckworth, has been pretty pretty aggressive towards the administration, saying that she wanted to see more high-level AAPI representation um, and, in fact, was actually going to hold up confirmations until she saw it. What's your take on that? So the Asian American community was pretty disappointed that there were no AAPI secretaries at the cabinet level as there have been for the last 20 years. Um, And we've made that very clear. Uh, I think that because our cabinet level appointees went from two to one with Neera Tandon withdrawing, we wanted to make sure that this issue was still being highlighted and prioritized. Um, And just as importantly is to make sure that the Biden administration is prioritizing these issues that are facing our community. And so I am glad that they're taking concrete steps. I mean, it's really part of building political power for the community. Before uh, the the Georgia Senate runoff, we had on uh, Lynn Nijin, who was the API director for Georgia, 
which was an incredibly important conversation to have about engage, how to really truly engage the API community in the work that she's been doing, uh, because the largest block of possible Democratic votes in Georgia was Black voters, and the second largest block, really who ended up really turning it, were the API voters. But traditionally, there hasn't been, what we learned from our conversation with her, a ton of organized political power. Uh, in 2014, I managed uh, Vivek Murthy's confirmation for Surgeon General, and so we really had tried to tap in. And I actually saw that. I'm sure it's evolved much more since then, but, but saw that there wasn't a real organized API political power block for us to tap into. How do you think it is evolving? How are how is the community harnessing their power? You are absolutely correct. And I think we are about to see, and we saw this already a bit in the 2020 November election, uh, the increase, dramatic increase of turnout from the Asian American communities in future elections. I think Georgia is a wonderful guide and roadmap to what we should be doing across the country. In Georgia, uh, the Black community has really uh, done everything in its power, not just to engage the African-American community, but also to bring along other communities, including the Asian-American community. I've been there a few times to help uh, campaign for the party and for candidates. And I remember once when I was there for the Stacey Abrams race, Stacey and the team had literature and outreach in so many different Asian languages. And in her election alone, they were able to triple the Asian American turnout. And then we saw an even higher percentage increase for 2020. And so we want to make sure that it's not just each community working within its own silos, but learning from each other and pulling each other along. And we can really see dramatic uh, increases in productivity. So it... Translating campaign literature into multiple languages feels like an excellent, tangible thing that can be done in terms of organizing. But in terms of you know what you're talking about, bringing other communities along, how people, how can people really learn from that? Like, what can they really do? So it seems so simple, you're right, but I will say, uh, disappointingly, that many candidates do not even do the basics of providing multilingual outreach. And so before we can even start having those in-depth substantive policy discussions, we have to make sure that we're doing the basic outreach on the ground. It's so important to be building these relationships, be communicating through more unconventional media outlets whether it's ethnic media, uh, social media outlets, radio, small newsletters. Um, not everyone is paying attention to the mainstream media, especially in minority communities and rural communities as well. Um, and so if that's one lesson that we've learned in the past few years, uh, it, it is that. I feel like when Lynn was on, she kept talking about all the WhatsApp communicating. She was doing like she was always in the WhatsApp like to find people where they where they are. What what would you like? What I'm not sure exactly how to phrase this, but say like what like what 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 lessons should we learn here? Like what do you want to see in this moment? I feel like from a policy perspective, like yes, we can try to have, you know, first understand data and then have more enforcement against hate crimes, but how do we not get to the point of hate crimes? Like how do we not get to that point? 
it's a horrible point that we're at. I will not be at that point. Yeah, that's a good question. And I will tell you, um, I lose a lot of sleep over this. Um, I feel like these are the immediate challenges in front of me. I feel that and I fear that we might have a very short runway to accomplish all this, right? So it's the top level <coughs> policy substantive changes um, to the local community grassroots efforts, you know, just talking to our community leaders, letting them know the importance of allyship, for example. People on the ground who might not have gone to school here, who might not have participated in politics or even gone to a rally or even registered to vote before, it's a challenge for them and for us to make sure that we're building bridges with other communities and not just to view this um, as a silo. So for example, with some local community leaders who wanted to do a rally within the Asian community, I reminded them that what makes real impact is to do these events along with other communities. I will say as an Asian American born and raised in the United States, um, it's a community that has often not been encouraged to rock the boat. We're always, you know, taught to mind our own business. Um, and so oftentimes we have learned that language and vocabulary of advocacy from other communities, from uh, women's movements, LGBTQ, uh, Black Lives Matters, and, you know, to work together, uh, we can make so much more progress. And that's a challenge to, to relay to, you know, communities, grassroots communities sometimes. For sure. And, and I'd actually love to use this platform now to talk about it. So to those listeners that we have here listening to this episode, when you talk about allyship for communities, for those who are not a member of the Asian American community, how would, what would you like to see allyship look like in this moment? That's a great question. You know, oftentimes, even though I was born and raised here, I have not felt or seen the Asian American community uh, in our history books, um, in various uh, civic uh, events. I always feel like people kind of forget the Asian American component. And so I think at this moment, and I especially learned this from talking with the families of the victims in Atlanta, where I thanked them for their moms because their moms gave voice to so many Asian Americans, especially women, whose stories haven't necessarily been seen as real American stories before. So to our allies, I just say, please, you know, see us, include us, make sure we're part of the larger conversation. And just in general, check in on Asian Americans in your networks. I've talked to a lot of people, whether it's young people or senior citizens, they don't necessarily feel like they have someone to talk to and may be confused about what they're feeling and how they can even be involved and help the situation. So just to check in on Asian Americans in your circles is really helpful too. Thank you, Congresswoman Grace Ming from New York. Such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Political Playlist. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Your Political Playlist, where you can see video of my interview with Congresswoman Meng. 
and join us live to ask questions during future ones. For more from Congresswoman Meng, you can follow her on Twitter at Rep. Grace Meng. Join us every week for smart but bite-sized conversations with women at the seat of power and activism. Subscribe, and if you like us, leave us a rating and comment to let others know. Talk to you next time. I want to let you know about a film from a good friend of mine, Eddie Wang, and his film Boogie. This is his directorial debut, a coming-of-age story of Alfred Boogie Chin, a basketball phenom living in Queens, New York, who dreams of one day playing in the NBA. While his parents pressure him to focus on earning a scholarship to an elite college, Boogie must find a way to navigate a new girlfriend, high school, on-court rivals, and the burden of expectation. I visited the set while they were filming, and it just was an incredible story and family vibe. Boogie is currently in theaters and also available on PVOD. I'm pretty excited to see it and hope you guys are too.